You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Uh, right now, though, let's get into a Bible study. Uh, are you ready for that? Yes. We are in some holy ground this morning. Oh, my goodness. Uh, an amazing passage of Scripture. If you need a Bible, raise your hands and the ushers will give you one. We are in some holy ground as we are looking at Matthew chapter 26, the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, I've titled the message, Gethsemane, Obedience Under Agony. Uh, we are going to be looking today at all that Jesus went through to accomplish and to purchase our salvation. And uh, just a remarkable passage of scripture. I've been meditating on it for weeks, and I've been looking forward to this morning to share it with you. And uh, so let's bring our hearts before the Lord as we do, as we open his word. Uh, Lord, we are so thankful that we have your word, which is living and active, uh, sharper than any two-edged sword. It is able to read us like a book. And Lord, as we read it, your word reads us. And it reveals in us things that you want to grow, things that you want us to repent from, things that you want us to uh, improve and to, to uh, continue in, things where you want us to persevere, things where you want us to not give up. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we ask now that your Holy Spirit would move among us and give each one of us, Lord, individually an ear to hear your voice, a heart to receive your message, and a mind to grasp the magnitude of your great love for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Let's jump in. Uh, we are going verse by verse through the Bible, and we had a couple topical messages over the last couple of weeks, but we're picking up right where we left off, uh, verse by verse. We're going to be in Matthew 26, verse 30. Actually, verse 31, my bad. Verse 31. And if you're there, let me hear a great big unified amen. amen. Oh, I love it. I love it. Uh, let's read. Jesus said to them, that's to the disciples, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. You ever been made to stumble because of Jesus? You were afraid to stand up for your faith? You were afraid to say what you knew to be true? because of the repercussion that might come from the group that was around you. Jesus tells the disciples, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. Stumble means to fall back, to deny him, to abandon him, to betray him. Jesus said, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. A quote from Zechariah written 500 years before Jesus came and he knew that very moment would come. Strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Verse 32, Jesus says, but I've got good news. It's not all gloom and doom. After I have been raised, I will go before you into Galilee. Isn't that good news? He didn't say, now you're all going to deny me. And I'm going to deny you. You're all going to abandon me and I'm going to abandon you. No, he says, you're all going to abandon me, but I am still going to love you. I'm still going to keep you as my own. I'm still going to lead, guide, and direct you. And I'm going to restore you when you have fallen and bring you back into my truth. Oh, what a good shepherd Jesus is. I know in a group this size, many of us have walked away from him this week. Many of us have done things that we would be ashamed if they were visible in the public right now. And Jesus says, I know you're going to be made to stumble, 
but I'm going to go before you still, and I'm going to call you to myself, and I'm going to lead you. And he's doing that in the disciples' lives here, and he's doing that in our lives right now. Uh, look what he says. After I have been raised, after I've been resurrected, I will go, be, go before you into Galilee, and there he will commission them and give them a ministry and, and give them a, a purpose in life, a powerful purpose. Verse 33, Peter answered and said to Jesus, even if all are made to stumble. And do you think Jesus looked at the other 11 guys? Even if all these losers. I don't think he said those words, but was that in his heart? I'm just better than all of them, Lord. Even if everybody else stumbles because of you, I'll never stumble because of you. What was going on in Peter's heart? What did he think of himself? Wow. Isn't it interesting? We would think that we would learn and be honest about who we really are, but for some reason, we want to put on this good front all the time. We think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. I will never deny you, even if all these guys do. And Jesus said to him, Peter, assuredly I say to you that this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me, how many times? Three times. Before morning comes, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. Unless the Lord leads, guides, and directs us, we are just prone to wander prone to fall, prone to stumble. It is only by his spirit working in our lives. And that doesn't come from thinking our flesh is strong. That comes from what? Knowing that our flesh is prone to sin. And when we are aware that our flesh is prone to sin, it is then that we keep our eyes on Jesus and say, Lord, I don't want to stumble. I want to walk with you. And it's then in our weakness, his strength is made perfect. And uh, the disciples aren't understanding that yet. And they're going to fall miserably as a result. All of them saying, no, Lord, I'll never deny you. Uh, and now our study for today, verse 36. Then Jesus came with them, the disciples who all just said, I'll never deny you. He came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. It's late Thursday night. It is very late into the night. Uh, and uh, Jesus, he says, hey, look, I, wanna, I need to get alone with God. I need to pull away. But I want you here with me. Stay right here. And I'm going to come over here free of distraction in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I'm going to pray. Jesus getting alone with God in prayer. Verse 37. And he took with him, uh, a little further than the other guys, he takes with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. Uh, who are the two sons of Zebedee? James and John, sons of thunder, right? Uh, Jesus transforming their lives. They're becoming, uh, uh, they will become uh, sons of dear love. Uh, he takes uh, Peter, James, and John with him. And look what it says. He began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. And he went a little farther, kind of went away to get a little bit of privacy. And he fell on his face and he prayed, Oh, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he prays that for a while. Then in verse 40, he comes to his disciples and he finds them sleeping. And he said to Peter, what? That word in the Greek, uh, it's hard to really express uh, how strong of a word it is. It's, it'd be like if we said, what the heck? Are you kidding me? It'd be like, you know, there's, there's uh, uh, some... 
uh, shock in the word. What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Here Jesus is hurting, man. I mean, he is uh, sorrowful even to the point of death. And he comes back and his friends are sleeping. And look what he says. Jesus says, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. You might want to underline the word you. In the context here, who does it mean? It means Peter. You might, it means Peter, James, and John. The guys who are, watch and pray lest you enter temptation. But in our life, who does the you mean? It's me. Watch and pray. If you don't, you will enter into temptation. You will fall to temptation if we're not watching and praying. Why? Because the spirit indeed is willing, but our flesh is incredibly weak. In my heart and mind, I want to walk with Jesus. But in my flesh, I find that I just give in to my flesh. And the answer to that is prayer. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Uh, verse 42. Again, a second time, Jesus goes away and prays. Oh, Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. We don't know how much time went on this night, uh, but I imagine it was hours. Jesus praying in great agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus asking his guys, his friends, to be there with him. And yet, as much as they wanted to pray, as much as they said they would pray, each time he comes back, he finds them sleeping. Verse 44, so he left them and went away again, and he prayed a third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples, and he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed. Present tense, happening right now, into the hands of sinners. Uh, Jesus had said this was going to happen over and over and over again. And now he says, guys, wake up, behold. And as he says, behold, I believe... Judas is already coming with a detachment of troops with all of their lanterns, all of their torches, all of their weapons and Jesus can see them afar off as they journey down towards the Mount of Olives, towards the uh, Gethsemane where they are and he says, look, they're already coming. And he says, rise, let us be going, see my betrayer is at hand. Here we see a, just a, again, as I mentioned, a holy section of scripture. Jesus knowing what is coming. Jesus having foresight, understanding, knowing that he is going to the cross. And all that is going to happen. And here we see, I want you to think of this. What is Jesus doing when all of this happens? He's spending time in prayer to the Father. And here Jesus shows us the importance of a healthy prayer life. The importance of prayer. The time has come. Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, his crucifixion is at hand. Judas is already on the way with a, 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 a squadron of soldiers. Probably between two and six hundred soldiers were coming from the Antonio Fortress. These are special trained, highly trained military men. And they are coming fully loaded for bear. And they're coming after Jesus. And I want you to think of the big picture of what is going on. Jesus has just finished his teaching ministry. His teaching ministry that lasted for three years. 
He's finished his teaching ministry. He's poured out his life. He's healed thousands of people. He has served hundreds of thousands of people, uh, lost and broken sinners just like you and just like me. His love, his actions, and his wise teachings has shown us the person of God. He is God in a human body. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Everything I do reflects him. Everything I do reveals him. The way I love, the way I speak, my, my, my forgiveness, my compassion, my mercy, my truth, my righteousness, all of it revealing God in the flesh. And he finishes his teaching ministry. And he's, he has poured into the disciples. He has prepared and equipped them. And, he has, uh, and notice, how did he prepare and equip them? Uh, he Very relationally, very intimately, intimately. He has done life with them for three and a half years. He has poured into them, each one individually. Uh, Jesus did not launch a program or a university or an institution. Instead, he did life with 12 men, intentional, every day, just spending time with them, having meals with them. And this is a sidebar, really wise for us to look at his wisdom in that. As parents, the best thing we can do to spend time with our kids. Have fun with them. Eat meals with them. Put the devices down. Turn the TV off. And actually do life with our kids. How many of you have been at restaurants and you've seen the kids with the iPad in front of them or the gadget, the device in front of them as the parents are off just... And there's no dialogue. Have you seen this? It's everywhere, right? Um... Our last vacation, we saw kids on vacation with the parents, and the parents are not even talking to the kids. They're at the, you know, just crazy. And here we see how Jesus did life with his disciples. And that's what builds us. Do you know why we're doing mission groups? Do you know why we have men's ministry and women's ministry? So that we can get in small groups together just like Jesus did and do life together. And it's powerful, and it's what changes us. Uh, notice that Jesus did not launch a university or a school of ministry. Instead, he did life with 12 men, and uh, it transformed them completely. But the time has come for Jesus to put away his teaching ministry so that he might accomplish his redemption ministry. The reason that he came to go to the cross, and Jesus single-handedly is about to accomplish the greatest single act in human history by far. The single greatest act in history, it's what all history points, points towards or points from, even our calendar points all to or from this purpose that he came to die on a cross for us. And I find it just so awesome what he is doing. What is Jesus doing as he is about to accomplish the greatest thing that, that has ever been accomplished on the earth? Is he holding a press conference? Is he holding a pastor's conference? Is he doing news interviews? Is he having board meetings? Is he having a political rally? Uh, no, he's not doing any of these things. What is he doing on the night before the biggest, most monumental event in human history? What is he doing? Praying. Jesus shows us the importance of prayer. And how important it is for us to really understand the power of prayer. Oh, if we understood, it would transform our world. I know that even today, in me taking us to this passage, it's going to be hard for us to really grasp the power of prayer. But may you look at Jesus as he goes to the cross, 
the most difficult thing he had done in all of his ministry. He's going to be, you know, accomplishing the biggest thing that the earth has ever seen. And what he is doing beforehand is spending hours in prayer. May we take note. May we pay attention. Uh, Billy Sunday, the great evangelist of about a hundred years ago, uh, said this, if you are a stranger to prayer, you are a stranger to the greatest source of power known to man. Billy Sunday's ministry converted hundreds of thousands of people and brought them to Jesus. And his answer is, how do you do that, Billy? His answer was, how? Prayer. Prayer prayer. Uh, Ian Bounds, uh, a friend of D.L. Moody, also about a hundred years ago, uh, a great pastor. He was a street evangelist. Uh, he did a, uh, went into the, the streets of the poor and, and uh, just brought great revival in these areas. And uh, F.B. Meyer said this, um, uh, he was in the United Kingdom, by the way. He said this, the great tragedy of life is not unanswered prayer, but unoffered prayer. Pretty wise. The great tragedy of life is not unanswered prayer, but unoffered prayer. Uh, and, and here we see the wisdom of Jesus, and he's saying, hey, listen, guys, I want to show you something. Pray. And listen, you might want to pray yourself, disciples, because you yourselves are going to enter into temptation. And prayer is the way that you have victory through the trials of life. We often think that the victory in the trials of life is found by bearing down and trying harder. But Jesus would model for us that's not the way. The victory is found how? In prayer. In prayer. Uh, through prayer, God gives us wisdom and strength. It was in prayer that Jesus found the strength to move forward to the cross. He did not want to do it. Lord, if it's possible, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to go through with this. If it's possible. But in prayer, he found the strength and the wisdom to move forward to the cross. The wisdom to navigate what was before him. This treacherous road was before him. I want you to know it wasn't at the scourging blocks that Jesus decided to be obedient. It was in Gethsemane that Jesus decided to be obedient. We're going to look next week. We're going to see the soldiers come to arrest Jesus. And when they come with all their weapons loaded for bear, hundreds of soldiers, Jesus says to them, ego am I, right? Uh, I am. And what happens to all the soldiers? They all fall down backward. Why did Jesus do that? He did that so the disciples would know, no one takes my life. I willingly give it. And then he allows those same soldiers to arrest them. Let me ask you a question. Where did Jesus come up with this idea? In the Garden of Gethsemane. As he's praying. Lord, I know they're coming. Father, I know they're coming to take me. I know I'm going to be crucified. Lord, I'm worried about my guys. Oh, let me do this, Father, and this will show them that I'm in control. And it is through prayer that wisdom and strength is given to us. And the time to pray is not when the trial comes. The time to pray is beforehand. Jesus would teach the disciples. And we have a lot to learn from Jesus' example in this. This night of fervent prayer took place at a garden called Gethsemane. Does anybody know what Gethsemane means? It's not a wine press, close though. It's an oil press. Gethsemane is an Aramaic phrase that means oil press. 
and pure virgin olive oil was made uh, by taking a giant stone wheel and crushing the olives. And as they crushed the olives, the pure oil, virgin olive oil, would pour out of the olives. How appropriate that Jesus chose to go to a place called the oil press to pray as he then moves forward in going to the cross. For it is at the cross that Jesus will be crushed. He was pierced, Isaiah 53, for our iniquities. He was crushed for our sins. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And as he is crushed, the oil of the Holy Spirit is able to flow freely because he was crushed. The Holy Spirit could not dwell with us until we were cleansed of our sins. But because he was crushed, the Holy Spirit is able to flow freely into our lives uh, because of the work he did for us on the cross. Uh, how amazing. Uh, Jesus' body would be crushed to purchase our redemption and then the Holy Spirit would flow freely. Imagine what Jesus was thinking that night. Again, it's Thursday. He has had Passover meal. We looked at that in previous weeks. He had the Passover meal with him. And he says, listen, this Passover meal, it's me. It's my body broken for you. It's my blood shed for you. And then he walks across the Kidron Valley over to the Mount of Olives where the Garden of Gethsemane is. And as he crosses through the Kidron Valley, that day when all the Passover lambs, that night when all the Passover lambs began to be offered, the Kidron Valley would be full of blood that flowed out down the temple, down into the Kidron Valley. And he crosses over seeing all that blood, knowing that all those lambs, Josephus would say 250,000 lambs were offered at that Passover. The blood of 250,000 lambs flowing through the Kadron Valley. Jesus crosses over knowing that all that blood is a picture of what? His blood that's going to be shed. And all 250,000 of those lambs could not forgive one single sin. Could not cleanse one single sin. But he knew that his blood could cleanse all sin. And he crosses the Kidron Valley with the disciples over that pool of blood, knowing that what was coming. And he goes into the garden to pray and to bring himself into the will of the Father. Jesus was in tremendous anguish as he pondered taking the sin of the world upon his own shoulders. The Holy One would become sin. Hebrews, excuse me, uh, 2 Corinthians tells us, he who knew no sin would become sin for us. I am sure that in our finite, childish understanding, we cannot even begin to grasp the depths of this. It's kind of like a child trying to understand a mortgage payment. Uh, well, Daddy, I have a piggy bank. Yeah, it, it doesn't work like that. Uh, we're able to grasp concepts, but not the full measure. Uh, the Holy One became sin. And Jesus pondering what was going to come. And he becomes in just tremendous ag anguish as he takes all of this upon his, his, his person. The very thought of it broke his heart. The very thought of it crushed his soul. Gethsemane, uh, not an accident, designed by God, a place he frequented often for prayer, uh, crushed under the weight of what was upon him. Luke's gospel tells us that he actually sweat great drops of blood. 
a medical condition called hematidrosis. Uh, it's when the capillaries in the skin under so much stress begin to burst and actually sweat becomes, starts just pouring out of your pores. Uh, you can look at pictures of people that have happened. It's extremely rare, but it's a medical condition that is known. And Jesus literally, under the weight of all of this, sweating blood. And in this weakened state, Jesus begs his disciples, his closest friends, to stay with him and to support him in prayer. And the very men who had just said they would never deny him, even if they had to die for him, they could not muster the strength to pray for Jesus in his great agony. What does that do for you? Don't answer out loud, but do you think you would have been any different? How many of you would like to be different? I think all of us would like to be different. But isn't it amazing how weak we are? And Jesus in agony coming to them and say, guys, come on. And imagine watching him sweat great drops of blood. Imagine how ragged he looked. The Holy One would be taking on the sin of the world. And he was fully cognizant of things that you and I cannot even grasp. And the disciples looking at him going, I don't understand what is going on with you. You look horrible. And yet they could not even pray. They fell asleep. As we look at the Garden of Gethsemane, we learn something that is a, just a theological truth. Jesus alone is faithful. Jesus alone is righteous. The Bible tells us there is none righteous, no, not one. All of us have fallen short. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, none of us. And here we see the disciples, as much as they wanted to be, as much as they thought they were, uh, they could not even pray with him for one hour. We are so unfaithful. He is so faithful. And I cannot help, uh, I think it bears looking. Uh, you can, we consider uh, the contrast of Jesus and us. The contrast of Jesus and Adam. Adam, our father, placed in a perfect garden. What was that garden called? Eden. No weeds. Imagine. No lying, no stealing, no cheating, no rape, no murder, no adultery, no broken hearts, no a perfect environment. No sin nature, a righteous nature given to him. A perfect environment. Can you imagine how beautiful the world was at creation? It's still stunningly beautiful with all of our pollution, poop, smog, sewer, everything. I mean, it's still stunningly beautiful. Can you imagine how beautiful it was in creation? And God says, all of it's yours, Adam. I give it to you, this perfect world. And if that were not enough, God himself, walking and talking with Adam in the cool of the day. And there in a perfect environment, what do we find that happens to Adam? The enemy comes along and man falls. Only Jesus is faithful. Only Jesus is righteous. And Jesus, here in the worst garden of all, the garden of what? Gethsemane. The garden of crushing. The garden of taking unjustly and unfairly all the sins of the world upon his own shoulders. In that garden, he is faithful in the very worst garden of all. 
Man placed in the very best garden of all? Unfaithful. Jesus placed in the very worst garden of all? Completely faithful to the Father's will at the highest of cost. Aren't you glad that Jesus chooses to call us his brethren? Aren't you glad that Jesus God became a man so that he can be related to us, so that he could adopt us and call us his own? Just amazing love, amazing love. No wonder Jesus says, no greater love has any man ever seen than a man would do this for his friends. Uh, I call you my friends, Jesus would say. Just incredible to ponder, just incredible to consider. Uh, our salvation is secure. Our salvation is sure. Our salvation, salvation is certain, not because we are faithful, but because why? Jesus is faithful. And even when we deny him, even when we stumble and fall, if we repent of our sin, if we make Jesus our Lord, our salvation is secure. Uh, I love that there is no yo-yo Christianity in the kingdom. Do you know what I mean by yo-yo Christianity? Oh, I'm doing good. I'm a good, God's, God's happy with me. Oh, God's not happy with me. God loves me. Oh, God doesn't love me. God's going to bless me. Oh, God's not going to bless me. God blesses me all the time. And God loves us all the time. And, and there's no yo-yo Christianity because of Jesus' faithfulness. And how encouraging is that in to know? Uh, just that uh, no matter what we face, uh, he is faithful. Here's a verse for us on the screens I'd like you to read. Hebrews 7. Verse 24, uh, let me hear you read this. Because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Think about that. Because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Great thought, right? Let's read on together. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He is able once and forever, for all time, you are always saved, you are always his, the moment that you uh, believe that he died on the cross for you. Just amazing. He's able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. Read with me. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. That's our behalf. Uh, he is the kind of high priest we need because he is holy and blameless and unstained by sin. In other words, Jesus alone is faithful. And he ever lives to make intercession for us. Just an amazing, amazing blessing that we have in Christ. In verse 39, Jesus prayed. What did he pray? What did he say? What did he ask? Let me hear you. What did he pray? Let this cup pass. Let this cup pass. If it is possible, let this cup pass. What was the cup? The cup was all of the sin of mankind being dumped on him. And him going to the whipping block to take God's wrath against that sin upon himself. He being separated from God because of that sin and him being crucified because of that sin. That was the cup. This cup is the cup of God's wrath against sin poured out full strength upon Jesus as he bare the sins of the world upon his own shoulders. And here's a question for you. Could this cup pass? I'd like an answer from you. Could this cup pass? Anybody think differently? Just as a show of hands, how many think the cup could pass? How many think the cup cannot pass? A lot of you didn't vote. <laughs> I hope our September election doesn't have that problem. <laughs> uh, 
this cup could pass. Look at verse 53. Do you not know that I could pray and 12 legions of angels would deliver me? Do you have any concept of how big a legion is? 5,000 soldiers. I could pray and 12 legions of soldiers. 5,000 times 12? Times 12? 60,000 uh, angels. Do you not realize I could pray and more than 12 legions, more than 60,000 soldiers would come? Excuse me, angels would come? Do you know that one angel in the Old Testament wiped out 185,000 Assyrian armies that were against Israel by himself in a moment? One angel. And Jesus says, do you not know that I could call over 60,000 angels right now? Just like that? Could this cut pass? Yes. But this cup could not pass and God the Father's will be done. But the cup could pass. Jesus had the choice. He didn't have to do this. Do you not know that I could do this? I could. But then how would scripture be fulfilled, Jesus said. How would my Father's will be done? And Jesus is saying, uh, Lord, not my will be done, but your will be done. And I want you to grasp something that is a very deep theological concept. It's going to blow our minds. It's going to stretch our, our understanding. But I want you to wrestle with this. For the very first time in all of eternity, the, Trinity, the Trinity was conflicted. This is a thought that is just bigger than I can even wrestle. I've been meditating on this, this passage for four weeks. And I'm still blown away by it. For the very first time in all of eternity, the Trinity is conflicted. You see, till now, the will of the Father had always been the exact same will of the Son. And the will of the Son had always been the exact same will of the Holy Spirit. The triune Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all have always had the exact same will, the exact same desire. Let me say it another way. Till now, in all of eternity, the will of the Father was always a delight for the will of the Son. And the will of the Son was always a delight for the will of the Holy Spirit. And the three live in this harmony, uh, a triune, one God, three persons living in such a harmony that they are one. And the unity, uh, there's a great book on the, uh, a great chapter in a book uh, on the, the Trinity. It, the book is worth buying just for this chapter alone. It's the reason, uh, the reason for God by Tim Keller. And the chapter is the very last chapter of the book. Uh, worth reading just for that on the Trinity. But my, my point is, there's this unity in the Trinity that from eternity past has been just, it's always been the Son's delight to do the will of the Father and the Father's delight to do the will of the Son and there's never been a rub and now for the first time in all of eternity the will of the Father comes at quite a rub for the will of the Son for the very first time in eternity For the first time in eternity, the will of God the Father brought great difficulty for God the Son. What for eternity had been just complete bliss and total joy now became difficult and excruciatingly painful, Gethsemane crushing even to the point of his soul being to the point of death, even to the point of sweating great drops of blood. And Jesus would say, nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done, Father. For the first time in eternity, God the Son is in agony to achieve the will of God the Father. And I don't think we can fully grasp this truth.
There's a passage in Hebrews uh, that uh, uh, tries to express and teach this. It's Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Uh, let me show you what it says. It says, even though Jesus was God's son, or in other words, even though that Jesus was God in the flesh, yet he learned obedience from the things that he suffered. What? Even though Jesus was God in the flesh, he learned obedience? How? Because never before had obedience ever been a rub. Look what the rest of the verse goes on to say. In this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest. No wonder. He knows what it's like when obeying the will of the Father is incredibly difficult for our current situation. He knows what it's like. And he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. Uh, Mind-boggling things. And I know it's a lot for a Sunday morning. Uh, I wish we had mission groups going. Wouldn't you like to discuss this in a mission group this week? And hear the insights from others? Uh, here we learn a great deal about God's love for us. What a cost God the Son is willing to pay to accomplish our redemption. Staggering. And I want you to consider something. This cup could not pass and have the Father's will be done. Why could this cup not pass? Why? Why isn't there just some other way? Jesus is praying. God in the flesh is praying. Is there some other way this can happen? How can we redeem man? There's got to be some other way to forgive sin. And this cup could not pass. Do you know why? Because life is not a fairy tale and God is not magic. Does that make sense? God cannot do anything he wants to do. He cannot deny his nature. God is just. And he will always be just. God cannot just forgive sin and pretend it never happened. Can't be done. Because he is a just and a holy God. He cannot just pardon sin. Sin must be punished or God is not just. Life is not a fairy tale. God is not magic. There is a price to our redemption. Sin must be punished. It must be banished from the presence of a holy God. And we can grab the, understand this on a childlike level. Imagine you as a parent. And you have a beautiful, innocent three-year-old, a toddler. And someone murders your toddler. God forbid. Right in front of your eyes. And that murderer goes to court. The trial date finally comes. And the judge says, I'm going to forgive that murderer. What would you say? I know what you would say. You would stand up. You would rip your clothes. You would cry out in anger and pain. And you would say, you are an unjust judge. This is wickedness. What about my child's life? Why? Because life is not a fairy tale. Justice demands that just things be done. And this is why God cannot just forgive sin and still be just. He cannot just wink at wickedness and say, it's okay, we'll just forgive it. Our sin is not okay with the holy God, and we need to know that. And one of my fears is that God's grace is so prevalent that we just begin to think sin is no big deal. Nothing could be further from the truth. And Gethsemane shows it. The cross shows it. God must punish each and every sin or he is unjust and unholy. And on the cross, God punished each and every sin. And you can go through life and know this, 
Your sin will be punished. You choose where, either on Jesus' shoulders or on your own. Romans uh, chapter 3 tells us this, that God demonstrates his righteousness to us to show us that God is both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. God is just. He always punishes sin. He always does the right thing. And he is also the justifier. And in Jesus Christ, God is both just and the justifier of those who put their faith in him for the forgiveness of sin. Just amazing. And Jesus knew that this cup, this cup of God's wrath against sin, was going to be poured out full strength on his shoulders. And he trembled at the thought. And the first time in all eternity, God the Son would be separated from God the Father. The Trinity would be broken as God's wrath was poured out on God the Son. And I want you to, if you're a Bible scholar, take note to this. Pay attention to this. Really tune in on this. What did Jesus say on the cross? It's the beginning of Psalm 22, my God, my God, what? I want you to know Jesus never called God my God. He always called him what? My Father. And for the first time on the cross, he cries out, not Father, because he is separated. He calls out, my God, my God, and he puts himself in our place. Amazing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was what I sweat great drops of blood over. The intimacy of the Trinity broken for the first time in eternity. Oh, the price of our redemption. May we not take it lightly. May we be worshipers of this amazing God. Our salvation was fully contingent upon Jesus obediently going to the cross on our behalf. Without it, our salvation was not possible because life is not a fairy tale and God is not magic. And at Gethsemane, Jesus obeyed God's will when obedience was crushing. And Jesus accomplished for us what, he could, what we could never achieve on our best day because Jesus alone is faithful. All of us would have folded. None of us would have made it. He is the only righteous one. And to prove it, the disciples are dropping like flies. And they haven't even faced anything remotely of a trial yet. It's just a time of prayer. And with no pressure whatsoever, they're already dropping like flies. Because Jesus alone is faithful. Peter will go on to deny Jesus when pressured by a mere servant girl. And let us not think that we are any better. Unless Jesus' Spirit is leading us, unless we are aware of our weakness, and unless we are spending time in prayer, every single one of us will fall to temptation and deny the Lord. Gethsemane shows us uh, three things about Jesus that I'd like to hit real quickly. Uh, at Gethsemane, we see the depth of Jesus' sorrow. I hope you understand it a little more fully after our study today. Jesus was deeply troubled, exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Deep emotional stress, sweating great drops of blood. The emotional inner life of Jesus' soul was being destroyed as he was shaken to the core from his being. And I hope that we understand that with a better understanding. And it's in that tremendous anguish that he begs his friends, can you not pray with me? His closest friends, can you just be with me right now? At Gethsemane, we not only see the depth of Jesus' sorrow, but we see the intensity of Jesus' prayer. Jesus shows us at Gethsemane what prayer is all about. 
What is prayer all about, church? What is it? What answer do I want to hear from you? What is prayer all about? What does Jesus show us prayer is all about? Focusing on what? The Father's will. Prayer is not telling God what you want. Prayer is focusing on what God wants. Big difference. And our prayer lives would grow infinitely more powerful if we quit telling God what to do and started focusing on what God wants us to do. That is the purpose of prayer. Jesus said, when you pray, pray this way, our Father, close, personal, intimate relationship that art in heaven, holy, to be revered, to be feared is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That's the purpose of prayer. What was Jesus doing at Gethsemane? He was focusing on how to accomplish the Father's will in this difficult situation that he was in. And that is the picture of what prayer is. Gethsemane shows us the intensity of Jesus' prayer. And Jesus prays what God wants him to do three times. I want you to know, prayer is deciding in advance how to carry out God's will in my life in the difficult situations that we face. At Gethsemane, we see the depth of Jesus' sorrow, we see the intensity of Jesus' prayer, and we see the strength of Jesus' resolve to obey the Father's will. To obey God's will, Jesus will have to endure some horrible things. The extreme physical beating and punishment that he's going to take on as human body beaten beyond recognition, his skin actually filleted off him, chunks of muscle taken as the cat of nine tails would dig into his sides and reveal his skeleton. I mean, just amazing. To do the Father's will, he would have to suffer that physical pain. He would also have to suffer the emotional pain of betrayal and complete loneliness, being separated from God. He would have to suffer absolute evil being poured upon him, our sin. Think of all the gross and heinous sin that Jesus had poured on his own shoulders. All the pride, all the lies, the rapes, the incest, the horrid things that have happened in untold billions of sins. Trillions, I mean gazillions of sins, all of it being poured upon him as he faces utter separation from God and then God's wrath being poured out upon him against God's, the full strength of God's wrath against sin and then uh, death itself. And in all of this, Jesus sets his face like flint and expresses his complete resignation to the Father's will. Not as I will, but as you will in Gethsemane. Gethsemane reveals the depth of Jesus' sorrow, the intensity of Jesus' prayer, and the strength of Jesus' resolve to obey the Father's will. I want to wrap up. I want to leave you with just this thought. I'm going to ask Kyle and the team to come up. And I want to say this with proper reverence. Uh, so hear me out. We all have our own Gethsemanes. They are nothing like Jesus' Gethsemane. They are childish in comparison. Nonetheless, to us, they are real. We all have our own Gethsemanes. And as we talk about them, and as I lead you through some thoughts on our own Gethsemanes, I want you to realize your Gethsemane is nothing compared to his. Always remember that. But in our Gethsemanes, we're going to find that there's times when we are hard-pressed to obey God. When obeying God is just incredibly difficult. And I want you to know something. These Gethsemanes are critical, life-defining moments. 
Jesus' faithfulness in Gethsemane determined all of eternity for all of humanity. And our Gethsemanes are life-critical, life-defining moments. Therefore, may we learn from Jesus how to pray in Gethsemane and the power that it brings us. May we learn how to resolve ourselves to walk in the center of his will. Because Gethsemane matters. Some will say, hey, I don't know about any of that. If God is good, then why do I even have Gethsemanes? Why doesn't God just bless me? Why is my life so difficult? Why do I have these Gethsemanes in the first place? How come I don't have a good marriage? How come I'm not successful in business? How come I'm not a leader? How come people don't follow me? How come I got all these problems? If God is good, then why do I even have these Gethsemanes? Here's why. Some blessings God cannot give us until we are mature enough to contain the blessing. Life is not a fairy tale and God is not magic. We have to be able to grow. We have to be able to have the character to contain the blessings God wants to give us. And sometimes that requires, and I use this word loosely, a Gethsemane in our life to prepare us, to build us. Let me illustrate it this way. I just had a grandson. His name's Owen. Guess what I have for Owen? I have a pocket knife. I have a BB gun. I have a motorcycle. I have a jet ski. All of these things I are the, the grandfather's will to give to my grandson. I can't wait to give them to him, but I can't give them to him now. Why? He's not ready for them. He has no maturity. These things would destroy him. Now, these things are already his, but I can't give them to him yet. He has to first be tried. He has to first become responsible. He has to first develop some character and ability. Life is not a fairy tale, and God is not magic. And so it is with us, just as it is with Owen. God's blessings cannot take us where God's character, excuse me, where our character cannot hold us. God's blessings cannot take us where our character cannot hold us. And therefore, our Gethsemanes matter. God, I'm not going to do my will, even though it seems easier, and even though doing your will is excruciatingly difficult right now, I'm going to focus in on your will, and I'm going to meditate on how I'm going to walk it out when that temptation comes to cheat and to steal and to lie and to brag and to do whatever. I'm going to do the right thing. For the last uh, 21 days, I'm in a 40 days of sanctification with a buddy of mine right now. And I am just trying to really deny my flesh. 40 days just to really try to die to my flesh. Whether it be lust, whether it be ego, whether it be laziness, lack of discipline, really trying to... And it's hard. But our Gethsemanes matter because there's character that is built in them. And when that character is built, the father can give the son the pocket knife, the BB gun, the jet ski, because he can hold it. He's got the character. Our Gethsemanes matter. So be faithful in your Gethsemane, Christian, because there God builds us and grows us and matures us so that we're able to contain all his rich blessings. Some of you say, well, why does it, why do I even have? Because if God gave it to you now, you wouldn't be able to hold it. He's got to build you first. 
two verses before we go, and then we'll get you on your way. Uh, this one's in Philippians, uh, Philippians 2. Look what the Bible says. Read it with me out loud. Why don't you stand with me? Let's read it out loud together. Let each of you, let me hear you, let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God. What that means is he knew he was God, and yet he didn't demand that he, you know, had all of God's privileges, right? But instead he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. Why did he do all that? To fulfill the Father's will. Let this mind be in you that is also in Jesus. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. He is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords. And he was faithful in his Gethsemane. And God will pour into us as we are faithful in our Gethsemanes. Uh, may we be wise. God is building you. Let him do it. You are his workmanship, Christian. You are his workmanship. He's a master artist and he's building you. Let him do it. By focusing in on his will and not compromising in our Gethsemanes. Let him do it. He builds one step at a time. And he will pour out his blessings upon us and he will build our character little by little. This is what he does. Do you realize that God wants to do big and great things in and through your life as you learn how to deny your flesh and walk in his will? The children of Israel, when they came out of Israel, excuse me, when they came out of Egypt, what did God have for them? What, where were they going? To a promised land. But that's just geography. What made it a promised land is that they were a people who would know how to walk in God's will. And God was preparing them for that. And so one last verse for you on your screens. Look at this one, Exodus, excuse me, Deuteronomy, Exodus 23, 28. Let me hear you uh, read this. I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canite, the Hittite from before you. Uh, hang on, the, the hornets, God's going to fight your battles. God's going to drive out your enemies. The hornets are a picture of nature doing, fighting your battles for you. God says, I'll fight them for you. Verse 29, but I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beast of the field become too numerous for you. No, 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 no. I'm not going to give you all the victories all at once. You won't be able to handle it. Look what he says. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you will inherit the land. Little by little, I'm going to build character in you until your character has increased to be able to hold all the things the Father wants to give to you. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.